Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Amrita Myers, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 14th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. With that, let's get right into tonight's extended Bring It On conversation. Well, first of all, Amrita, thank you so much for being here. Do you know how much I've missed this? Uh, And particularly with you sharing mics. I know, it's been a long time. It has, it has. But, folks, good evening. I'm Jim Sims, and tonight, with President Trump's threats to, of shutting down the government due to his defiant stance over the construction of a border wall, we are dedicating our broadcast to the plight and common misunderstandings of undocumented Latino immigrants. We have invited Professor Felipe Hinojosa, an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University, to join us for this lengthy discussion. Born and raised in Brownsville, Texas, he received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Houston. His teaching and research interests include Latino, Latina, Mexican, American studies, American religion, social movements, gender, and comparative race and ethnicity. He serves as director of undergraduate studies in the history department um, at Texas A&M, and he is the co-founder and coordinator of the Latina Latinos Studies Working Group. Professor Inahosa has published articles on the Latina Latino religion, the Chicano movement, and the war on poverty, which appears in prestigious review. Professor Inahosa's book, Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Let's try that again. Evangelical Culture was published in um Actually, it was in the the study. I, I got lost there. Please forgive me. The book was awarded the 2015 America Paredes Book Award for the best book in Mexican-American and Latina Latino studies given every year by the Center for Mexican-American Studies at South Texas College. Professor Inahosa, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for sitting through as I butchered that one part of the script. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, Felipe, apparently we uh, <laughs> we dropped the year that your book was published. Yes. Uh, 20, 2014. 2014. I'll never forget. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for us to forget those years. It's like the year our children are born. So That's right. <laughs> no, thank you so much for joining us tonight. So, um, you know, this is going to be a dialogue. We've got you here for almost an entire hour, and I know the time is going to fly by there is so much to discuss and but we are we're just grateful that you're giving us um an hour of your very precious time as we um it seems like every every day there's something else that's in the news about um immigration about the border wall every day it seems like another group is being targeted it's not just um latinx peoples it's not just uh you know last week we know that now it seems like our vietnamese brothers and sisters are are being targeted people from Thailand, people from, you know, different parts of the world. And I know that this is something that's very near and dear to your heart. You've done a lot of social justice work on your campus surrounding this issue. We could address this from a lot of different um, 
lot of different um, angles, actually. But maybe you could um, backtrack us a little bit and talk a little bit about um, where you grew up um, in Brownsville and how um, and where and how you grew up. And how, this is something that's very intimately connected to you and to your family and to your childhood. So maybe we could maybe start there if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I'll just say that um, to be and to grow up uh, Mexican-American in the United States, it means that you are always intimately involved um, with these issues. These are stories that are not just ones you see in the news, but they reflect part of your own family history, part of my own family history. Um, and so I grew up in Brownsville, Texas, and if, if you imagine the state of Texas, uh, I grew up on the southernmost tip, um, right on the southernmost tip of, of Texas. Um, I grew up maybe about a 10-minute walk uh, from uh, the port of entry from the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Brownsville had a nice, or has still, a, a downtown area uh, nearby where um, uh, family members would walk from my house to downtown for shopping and different things like that. Um, and when I uh, turned, when I graduated high school and started my college years, uh, I started my first two years of community college there in Texas Southmost College, which was about a 10-minute walk. Uh, from my house and literally located right, um, right on the border. As a matter of fact, um, when when conversations were going going around about building a fence, they were calling it a fence back then, a border fence. Um, the engineers that were sort of diagramming where this fence would be lined up uh, basically had it cutting across right across the community college. And so, if you were going to go to your sociology class, you'd have to essentially. Uh, you know, jump the fence or go on the other side uh, if that would have uh, if that would have taken place. And so those, <laughs> hang on, it would have cut right through your campus. It would have cut right through the campus. It would have cut right through the campus. Yeah, these were folks that had no idea uh, of anything uh, in terms of uh, border communities, what we're all about. Wow. Um, wow. And so that that that's sort of the community that I grew up in, predominantly Mexican, Mexican American. Uh, I would say close to ninety, ninety five percent of us were either Mexican or Mexican-American, and um, born and raised there. Uh, obviously, it's been in the news a lot because of the child, um, uh, those detention centers uh, yes. down there, and, and so it's made this national, uh, these national headlines. But the way that I remember it, uh, obviously, it will always be home. It remains a place where I go and, and, uh, uh, and find fulfillment and so forth. Um, but it's, you know, my my home in my area, I grew up uh, a preacher's kid, um, which, so you'll forgive me, hopefully I don't go sermonizing tonight. Um, but, I'll pass the plate. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but my, my parents, my dad was Catholic, my mother was Methodist, uh, and my parents were migrant farm workers uh, who used to migrate up to the Midwest, um, places like uh, Archibald, Ohio, and, uh, and places around Michigan. Uh, picking tomatoes and uh, working in different uh, family farms, and that's where in in Ohio actually is where they met the Mennonites, uh, this sort of sectarian religious uh, group, um, and started working for a Mennonite uh, family. And uh, my grandmother liked the Mennonites because they respected the Sabbath and didn't work on Sundays. Um, and my parents ended up sticking to that tradition, and so I grew up uh, quite. Uh, oddly and, and pretty strangely, uh, as a Mennonite, Mexican-American Mennonite in South Texas, in Brownsville, Texas, where my father started 
uh, a church down there in 1969, 1970. Yeah, I remember you telling me that your father, you were a preacher's kid, and your father pastored a Mennonite church. <laughs> right, right. So we took uh, Indiana in many ways is home to me, too, because we took a lot of trips to uh, Mennonite church conferences. There's a large Mennonite population mm-hmm. there in Indiana, and so uh, we did that a lot growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be a pleasure to talk with someone not only that talks about it, but has walked about it. Um, so I appreciate that. If I may, can I, may, may I be allowed to say Felipe as well? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Well, I'm just, I haven't met you formally yet, so just want to make sure. Um, and if it's okay with you, and thank you for sharing that with us, um, there are several topics along the lines of immigration I'm sure that we'll be able to touch on tonight and probably won't touch on them all. Um, but it seems to be the first place to probably get started on is um, the president's threat to actually allow the government to shut down on this coming Friday, I believe, um, unless he gets funding for the, the border wall. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I mean, there's a million thoughts. And I think, first of all, um, you know, the the absolute ridiculousness, I think, of, of the president's plan in terms of um, a border wall. There's already a large militarized presence on the border. Um, this has been a process that's been evolving over time and, and really sort of uh, kicked up in the 1990s um, in terms of the kinds of infrastructure, equipment, uh, and boots on the ground in terms of um, uh, uh, of the entire border area. In Brownsville, Texas, there is already a border fence. There are areas and parts of town where, um, you know, you can go. There's the, And, and the, the thing about Brownsville is that it's not, it, it, it's a community that is literally right on the banks of the Rio Grande. And so um, this border fence cuts across neighborhoods, behind homes. Uh, there's a part that actually stretches uh, and is vis- visible from an elementary school. And so as kids are out there playing basketball or, or uh, during, um, uh, you know, recess and so forth, they can see the border fence in the backdrop of, of their elementary school. This is already a reality um, for a lot of us that grew up on the border and are familiar with it. And so to see this kind of heightened rhetoric, uh, again, just sort of uh, builds on this notion that Washington, D.C., that politicians in general and that President Trump especially uh, are completely disconnected from the politics along the border. Mind you, that these are also communities on both sides of the border that are economically tied together. And so um, during the recession in 2008 and 2009, to a large extent, that border community in South Texas um, uh, didn't suffer quite as horribly as it could have because there was a lot of, uh, there are still a lot of shoppers, still a lot of wealthy folks from Mexico that come up and uh, come and spend their, their vessels, come and spend their money, uh, at, at the shopping malls, at the J.C. Penney's, at the Dillard's mm-hmm. uh, there in South Texas. They buy properties. They open restaurants. This is something that President Trump fundamentally does not understand, and I think it's... And it's, by the way, I should say it's not just President Trump. This is a long... This is a longer sort of pattern um, where the nation's core, the, you know, the, the capital, D.C., and even I would, I would even suggest Mexico City, to a large extent, uh, are too distant and too far away to fully comprehend um, you know, border communities. And I think uh, President Trump, I think, risks the economic viability of border communities, and he risks putting more people's lives at, at risk in terms of um, 
more people dying because they're looking for places to cross that are much more dangerous. Well, and thinking of speaking about economic viability, what is he going to do to the rest of the country if he forces an economic shutdown of the government? Right. Right. I mean, if he presses that, I mean, we've faced eco shutdowns before, but I mean, to threaten a full shutdown of the government on the basis of not getting his way of building this wall, right? That not, that not only threatens the viability of the border communities, but of the entire nation. Of the entire nation. And mind you, this is a man that ran on a promise that he was going to get Mexico to pay for the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Right. And I mean... Speaking of, you know, you were talking about the detention facilities, and so if Jim doesn't mind, I would like to piggyback and and see if we can maybe speak a little bit about those detention facilities, um, because, you know, we know that one of those largest facilities is actually in your hometown, right? That Walmart, that empty Walmart that's con been converted into one of the largest child detention facilities in the nation. Right. And, uh, and, and that... That, that Walmart, by the way, is about a mile down from where I went to high school. I mean, that, that was, it's, what's so strange about this whole thing uh, is that it's part of a neighborhood, part of a community that you're very familiar with, all of a sudden participating in this sort of um, really sort of hateful um, uh, policy that has uh, endangered the lives of thousands of children. I think we're talking about 15,000 children now is the latest number. Um, that are being held in detention, uh, and with the recent death of this uh, young girl from uh, Guatemala yes. that died at the hands of Border Patrol agents of dehydration. Um, I think for me, as you know, a person that grew up in Brownsville, it's sort of surreal to sort of watch it uh, all happen, and, and and those of us that are living in that community really um, almost feeling like there's really nothing that we can do. I think that's a really frustrating thing. I think so many of us feel that way, that we feel helpless, right? that we wonder what, what is it that we can do that, because it's enraging, it's infuriating that, especially when we hear not only about, you know, that children are dying, but we hear stories coming out of these facilities of children being sexually assaulted. And we hear officials saying that there's, you know, either that they're outright denying that these things are happening, or if they're even admitting to it, saying that, oh, well, this is not our fault, there's nothing we can do about it. it like, everyone's passing the buck and saying it's not their fault. Right. Well, if I can, I'll, I'll just backtrack just a minute. Um, and you were talking about Brownsville and how the fence wove through neighborhoods. And elementary schools. And elementary and all of that. Right. And I guess what I was thinking at that point is what currently is the cultural or racial mix of Brownsville um, or that community today? So Brownsville is uh, and remains today heavily uh, Mexican or Mexican-American. Um, and I would say, you know, this is sort of just off the top of my head, but just sort of knowing the community as well. I mean, we're talking about 88 to 90 or so percent of the population, um, you know, being Mexican or Mexican-American. Um, and that also includes people from Mexico that come over and live in Brownsville uh, to have their kids go to school or, um, you know, have them enroll some of the wealthier communities in Mexico that might come and have their kids enrolled in some of the, you know, uh, private schools in town and so forth. Um, the I grew up in my high school. There were probably about 2,000 total students. It's, um, Brownsville is probably now 
maybe 200,000 in population. Um, wow. And in my high school, there would have been 2,000 students. Overwhelmingly, everybody was Mexican-American, and there might have been about, I kid you not, probably about five white kids uh, in our school, and maybe about, I, I went to school with maybe about two or three African-American um, guys that I remember at that, at that school at that time. Um, so it is heavily uh, a Latino community uh, in, every single, uh, in every single way, and a lot of the folks that, that moved down there or that have moved down there um, that are not Latino Tend to tend to move to that area to work in uh, the maquiladora industry on the Mexican side of the border. So they're working with a lot of American companies that have moved to Mexico and have their plants established in one of mm-hmm. the communities and so forth. So, but that but that that whole South Texas region is heavily uh, heavily Latino uh, Latino area. Okay, and you shared with us um, uh, with the politics in Washington and the. the U.S. leadership is that Brownsville area or down in there was really too far away um, for them to have a feel or an understanding. Do you think that same feeling stretches along the entirety of its border um, down San Diego even, you know, along the whole length? This is a very Uh, long border we're talking about. Exactly right. And I wonder if... You know, my lord, I just got this fillet. Um, I'm just interested in the mental state all along the border, and I know it's bad for everyone. But um, for myself and the benefit of our listeners, I was wondering what what you felt about that. It is very long border, actually. Yeah. Think about it, Arizona. You know, we're thinking yes. about a border that stretches all the way through yes. how many states? Right, yes. Arizona, New Mexico, California. Gotcha. I mean. Right, yeah. and and one that meanders in and out, and there's no sort of um, clear indication in some parts of that border of when you're in the United States and when you're in Mexico. Right. I, mean, I think this is, you know, when, when President Trump talks about uh, the border region or maybe even people that have never been to the border region, think about it. Um, you know, I don't know what kind of vision they might have in their head, but it's, ne- it's not always as clear as perhaps we would like it uh, to be. And I think there's, there is a sense of borderland culture, borderland identity that that people share. I mean, I have friends, um, you know, in, from San Diego, uh, from the, the border area there in Tucson, uh, El Paso, uh, and in different parts. And while each of these experiences are different, I mean, even the kind of regional Mexican foods that people eat uh, in some of these areas are very different uh, depending on, on where exactly they're at. I think there is still this sort of common sense of living a bi- bicultural, um, bilingual uh, reality and being and growing up in this and sort of understanding the way that Spanish is used, the way that uh, different foods are um, available or made available, the cultural uh, expressions that you see, the festivals, different things like that. Uh, I think there is a sense that, you know, it's not sort of this hard line uh, in the sand. This is an area where the United States bleeds into Mexico, and you and the mm-hmm. and Mexico bleeds into the United States. This is something that um, you know begins um, uh, much much earlier than what people sort of imagine. I mean, Américo Paredes, the the um, um, the man who's who's uh, who they named the award that I won uh, the book from was a folklorist. He was an anthropologist who taught at UT Austin for for many many years. Uh, the way that Américo Paredes described it was greater Mexico. This was an area that right. 
was Mexico de afuera. This was the outside Mexico. This was, um, uh, you know, as one as one uh, writer uh, has put it, uh, this is this is still Mexico. It just learned English, you know. On this, <laughs> right? um, and so I, I think I think that's sort of the challenge that that we have uh, as borderlanders is in the ways that we sort of understand ourselves and, and the ways in which we see our communities. Uh, but also, it, I think it makes it very difficult for people who have very static and very limited notions of what it means to be an American and what it means to live in the United States, right? Um, there's all kinds of different cultural sort of expressions all over the United States. Why wouldn't the border have its own sort of bicultural, uh, binational, uh, and bilingual sort of reality, right? And I think that's what that's what makes us unique, and that's what I think binds uh, many of us. And I think if you talk to people from La Frontera, from the border, they will tell you the same thing about Washington, D.C. being too far and too disconnected uh, to make policy uh, about us. They'll say the same thing about, you know, Mexico City being too far away. To understand. Um, and, not, and not understanding border communities from the Mexican perspective, right? But I think even even for those of us living here in the Midwest, Felipe, I think that I think it's important for us to have perspectives like yours, um, people like you on our show, because I think often we can forget um, why it's important for us to understand what's happening in places like Brownsville and in places, you know, like border towns, you know, like when we saw what was happening, when that caravan crossed or tried to cross right into California and the tear gassing happened and people were sitting watching on the news and so many people were, I mean, everyone was horrified, and I, w I think would hopefully be rightfully horrified. Um, and I, th I, th I think it was just so foreign to so many people. Um, I think it's important for us to have people like you on the show, because I think for those of us living in the Midwest, for so many of us, it's like, well, why should this matter? Um, you know, this seems so unreal. This seems like it's happening in another country. Um, it seems so disconnected. Um, and yet... For those of us living in Indiana, um, it's actually really, at least if we stop to think about it, we have a growing Latinx population. We have, we're living in an, a highly agricultural society. We have a lot of Latinx folks um, who live right here among us, who come especially to do agricultural um, labor, uh, who come regularly with, right, in terms of field production. We live very close to Chicago. Um, which has an enormous, yeah. right, uh, Latinx population um, and has for a very, very long time. There's actually a cyclical, um, there's a cycle um, that brings um, agricultural laborers in through this area. And I'm not even sure if people are aware of the growing numbers of, um, of Spanish-speaking people that are, that are actually, you know, booming in, in through this particular area of, of Indiana. Um, and I, I think I told you I had this conversation just the other day with people um, about the event that's going to be bringing you here in March that I would like to talk a little bit more about. And they were sort of like, oh, well, this is something that, you know, why is this something that we should really be focused on here in the middle of the Midwest? As opposed to, oh, yes, undocumented people should be, that's something that we should be more concerned about if you live in a place like Brownsville, but why should we, we be concerned about it in Indiana? And I sort of was like, well, A, as human beings, I think we should all be concerned about it. But B, um, actually, <laughs> you know, uh, this is something that we should all be thinking about and concerned about um, if we live in this country. Um, but in, even in Indiana, this is something that we should be thinking about and concerned about and aware of. 
Um, and, and, um, and it was just, um, and I think our viewers, uh, um, our listeners, I always say viewers, and I'm like, hang on, this isn't a TV show. Um, but I think our, our listeners, hopefully, are getting as much out of this as I am listening to you tonight, Felipe. So, Well, well I, I, I think, you know, Américo Paredes had this idea of Greater Mexico extending not just into the region that we, that we understand as U.S.-Mexico borderlands, but also the Midwest. Yes. <laughs> Northwest. The Northeast, right? I mean, if you go to Elkhart County uh, in you know Northwest Indiana or to Goshen, Indiana, he knows Indiana. Yeah, all right, <laughs> that is for sure. Right, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about in, in Goshen, Indiana, small little town near about 45 minutes outside of South Bend, um, whose population in uh, the K through 12 school program there is 50 percent plus Latino students, Latinx students there now. Uh, that whole community is being transformed, and I think, you know, uh, the the issues that that um, or the questions that people have about, you know, American identity or about citizenship. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is sort of look at, um, you know, the the type of entrepreneurship, the type of businesses that get started, the salons, the taquerias, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of these things that that come with that, uh, and at the same time, uh, a quest. Uh, from these communities to, you know, I mean, to have their kids go to college and to have their kids succeed, to have their children do what every other parent wants their children to do. It's still that American dream, right? Exactly, mm. exactly. Get an education, <laughs> all of that, right? I mean, there's yeah. there's this sort of like, this this ideology or this, this crazy notion out there that, that somehow none of us are going to want to learn English and that we're not assimilating and this and that. Uh, well, you know, assimilation has very many different terms. It's not just it's not just going from immigrant to white, quote unquote, right? I mean, it, it, there's a there's a there's different tracks of how we see and how we view American identity, and I think that's important for for everyone to understand, especially people uh, in the Midwest, where I think Latino immigration is is revitalizing uh, many communities that that were hit hard by the recession or by depopulation. Yes. Um- and as of 2012, the Hispanic or Latino population in the United States was at about 17 um, percent. Right. And I highlight that to to um, give our listeners a different perspective from the immigration standpoint. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and I'm sure I'm ready will if I'm here or no. right here next to me. Yes. But in round um, different immigrations around 1890s, 1900s. Um, most of that was from North and Western Europe, which included Great Britain, Ireland and Scandinavia. Um, and of course, after 1910, then we became the southern and eastern parts of Europe. Um, and they were the majority of the migrant numbers. Um, and something in my research today, and I didn't know, I don't know why it would strike me as, as weird a little bit or, or different, but the largest ethnic group in the United States happens to be of German descent, or Germany. Um, and that's if you divide the Hispanics into Mexican-Americans slash into Cuban-Americans slash into all the different slashes that we have. Um, um, 36 million from Ireland, uh, 25 million that identify as English are from England um, and knowing all of that and then the negativity that, that we see every day about um, the immigration of, of black and brown people Spanish-speaking people coming from south I, I'm interested in your perspective from a, a nationalism standpoint um, with this America first approach um, is there any portions of that that, that 
I think we can identify and actually touch some of the alt-right um, nationalism policies uh, of the past and actually current, I should say. Um, but what are your thoughts on or, or that? Um, is, uh, we have some other things from other politicians about nationalism and, and being more about the country itself as opposed to other aspects. So I'm interested in hearing your position I'm on not that. Sure. What's the question? Uh, well, with everything, how, how does he think the, the nationalism of, of federal politics uh, play into this. is playing into this? Well, um, the America first. And, okay, well that really plays. Okay, but that really plays into the question that William Hosea sent us it, via it, text because Paul Ryan, on his does. way out of Congress, um, in the midst of all of this, trying to like keep uh, you know Latinx people out of the country, has just approved rush f- rush visas for five thousand Irish workers to come into the country. So at the same time that we're trying to build a border wall and keep Latinx peoples out of the country, Paul Ryan has just approved 5,000, let me repeat, 5,000 rush visas for Irish workers. So Jim has just asked you, (laughs) Professor Hinojosa, what you think nationalism has to do with this. And I am just telling you that Paul Ryan has approved 5,000 rush visas for Irish workers. So now I'm going to let you answer that question. Thank you. Well, I mean, you know, let's be let's be just clear and, and direct. Uh, this is the white supremacist project. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, Jim was leading you on, and I just I just like trying jumped that in your lap. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get there. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You. It was a one-two punch right there. Okay. This, this is a white supremacist project, and it always has been. You look at immigration laws throughout the latter part of the 19th century and into. Um, the 20th century, um, you know, you were just sort of highlighting uh, some of those right now. Um, you know, strict immigration enforcement uh, has, a bit, has been about maintaining uh, homogeneity in the United States, about yes. maintaining a white population in the United States. And whenever, and specifically targeting Asian... Yeah, immig- America first means white first. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, and then going after uh, Latin Americans and specifically Mexican uh, immigrants, although... With Mexican immigration, there's always been a pull from uh, the agricultural sector and from um, different sort of turkey, poultry processing plants all over the country that have always made a play for Mexican immigration, um, you know, to sort of be uh, allowed in based on those uh, labor shortages that, were, that, uh, that the United States was experiencing, especially around World War I. Uh, and during the first part of the 20th century, Mexico, not only was there a labor shortage because we were at war, Mexico was also experiencing a revolution uh, at that time. And so uh, you had an influx of Mexican immigrants that were coming into the United States. And this leads then to the militarization of the border, the establishment of the Border Patrol, which in many, way, many uh, ways people sort of see that as an extension of the Texas Rangers and the state-sanctioned violence mm-hmm. that, the, that the Texas Rangers um, committed in ter- uh, with, uh, against black and brown communities in Texas. And the Border Patrol becomes just sort of a federally sanctioned um, patrol that then is going after, um, you know, these populations. And so those two are very much tied into, uh, into all of this. And when you hear Stephen Miller talk oh. about this, uh, uh, Steve Bannon, when you mm-hmm. hear these folks, um, sort of talk about America first, and even the president. Um, you know, these are the ideologies that we're coming from. This is this is part of this racist history within the United States that has uh, always targeted immigrants, and in particular immigrants of color. 
Um, and make no mistake about it, when we think about nationality, when we think about those sorts of um, identities, um, in the United States, the term Mexican, even the term Mexican, which we sort of see as a national identifier, and that's what it is at its core, in the United States uh, becomes a racialized identifier, becomes a, a way of identifying a, a people's race, even though Mexicans span the sort of racial tones in terms of skin yes. colors and so forth. Mexican becomes a way, uh, it becomes a racial epithet. Mm-hmm. It becomes a, it was a derogatory, a derogatory term. Angles in Texas start to go after what they call mezkins, right? Um, and so this is this is part of that, I think, trajectory, and it, it's, it's a continuation of that uh, white supremacist project that, um, you know, was used to colonize Mexico in 1848, uh, colonize the Caribbean in, in 1898, and then go on from there. Can we can we talk about the fact that I really I think it's important that we talk about the fact you just hinted at it right that Mexicans span like the range of uh, right appearance and sort of like mm-hmm. tones right uh, one of the things that I think is really important and that often gets left out of this conversation right this is bring it on is right an African American um, community radio show um, and I think that. One of the things that often gets left out of this larger conversation is the fact that the the larger right Central and South American population and the larger Latinx community does have black people in it, right? And that this is, I think, this is an important factor that we need to talk about, right? There are black people in Central and South America. There are black people in Mexico, right? There are, and I mean. This is you. I mean, certainly you and I know this, Felipe. But there are people that I still talk to today. I talk to my students. I talk to people on a right on a daily basis in this in this country who actually look at me with great confusion when I say that. Right. And there are people being held in the detention facilities, if kids, adults, women, men of all ages, from Central and South America, from Mexico, from all over, from Honduras, from Guatemala, who are black. Right. And who are all and who are Lat- who are Latinx? Right. And that shocks people because they don't actually realize that there are Spanish-speaking Latinx people who are also of African descent. Right. And I don't know if you maybe could just maybe expand upon right. that just a little bit for our for our listening audience. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, when you think about um, the, the the largest slave port is in Brazil. This is what Gerald Horn called the deepest South. Um, when you talk about uh, the, the the Atlantic slave trade coming to uh, to Latin America, um, uh, large numbers of uh, black folks that live, I think, sort of this contradiction of invisibility and and even hyper visibility, and especially when we think about um, immigration or immigration policy. Uh, or these sorts of uh, politics that emerge, for the most part, people don't realize or, or at least try to conveniently forget that uh, there are large numbers of um, uh, black immigrants that are coming to the United States. There are large numbers of indigenous immigrants that don't speak Spanish, mind you, um, that are coming to uh, California and North Carolina and different parts um, of the United States. So it's much more... Uh, complicated. It's much more of a mosaic, uh, I think, than people sort of mm-hmm. even can begin to sort of wrap their heads around in terms of how uh, vast all of this is. And the type of demonization, the type of criminalization, mm-hmm. then always hits uh, darker-skinned immigrants the hardest, right? 
Um, I mean, race yes. matters, and race matters at the border as well. Let's not kid ourselves. Yes. No question about that. Okay, and actually, if I can take just a second for the benefit of our listeners, we are speaking this evening with Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M University, Mr. Felipe let me get this correct. Dr. Felipe Inahosa. Dr. Felipe Inahosa. Thank you. I, there you I go. do want to be correct. Dr. Felipe Inahosa. I will get that. <laughs> and thank you so, so very much for joining us this evening. Um, this is enlightening for even us sitting here in the booth, and I know um, it is enlightening and, and, you know, for our listeners. One but, of the things I wanted to just to piggyback on what Dr. Inahosa was talking about in terms of sort of the you know, it is right that um, racialization is really important um, and the darker skinned immigrants do have a, an even more difficult time at the border is that uh, just last week was reading a really, really disturbing article um, online. I mean, these days it seems like a lot of articles are disturbing, but that um, in the detention facilities, um, detainees are, met, are, are wearing color, are given color coded shirts to wear um, depending on you know, um, their threat level, basically. So they're basically, they're ascertained to be how threatening they are in terms of like their, you know, how basically they're given shirts according to how threatening they're determined to be like. Yeah. Well, I didn't know this either. So, but red is determined to be like if they're the highest level of threat, like, and um, the reporters who, the reporter who wrote the story said that when they were in the facility, they hadn't really seen any prisoners wearing or detainees wearing red shirts um, until they were taken to one particular part of the facility where all of the detainees were um, black. And all, and that's when every single person they saw was wearing a red shirt. And these are all Latinx. These are all Latino Latina detainees in this facility. And that's why I thought it was really, really important to emphasize that it's important that we all, as human beings in this country, care about this issue of undocumented, um, you know, um, immigrants. Of, of the border wall, of detainees, of these camps that are being built, of children being separated from their families, of people, you know, this is important to all of us as human beings. It should be. But I think that for our listening audience of African Americans, we need to care about this, right? As people of color, we need to care about this because there are people of African descent being held in these facilities and race is playing an important part in, an, in a very nefarious way. Because people are being segregated out by virtue of race and they're being classified and color coded. And again, race is being used, you know, to classify people. And they're being, again, just like in prison, oh, these people are more violent, they're more dangerous, they're being given special shirts to wear, and they're being housed separately, even in these detainment facilities, right? And I had no idea this was going on. And so, again, I mean, every day I'm learning something new, and these are not things that are making me any happier. <laughs> right. right. It, it, and and to, to sort of build on your point, you know, it, it, it makes a difference when people come to a border checkpoint, whether they're coming from Mexico to the United States. Skin color matters, the kinds of suspicions that Customs and Border Patrol agents might have uh, against somebody that's trying to cross from Mexico into the United States, even if all their paperwork is in order, right? Um, and then people often forget, too, or maybe they don't know, that 60 miles north of the border, there's another checkpoint. Um, and every time, if I, if I go home 
from College Station, Texas, and I drive to Brownsville. Whenever I come back north, whenever I head out of Brownsville, 60 miles north, you hit that second checkpoint. And um, you're asked whether you're a U.S. citizen or not, if you're bringing anything back, all of that as you as you cross over and, you, and as you sort of come back into, quote-unquote, the United States, even though you technically never left. Um, and it's, it's really important for people to know that because I often tell my students here at Texas A&M, uh, and especially um, Asian immigrant students, black students, I- immigrant students that are here in Texas, you know, as foreign exchange students or they're here from another part of the country or whatever it might be, um, you know, if they're going down there to South Texas, if they're going to go to spring break on the beach, enjoy the food, I'm always like, do it, enjoy it. It's a great place. The people are lovely, all of that. But take your passport, take your paperwork, take your documentation with you, carry that with you because, um, yes, technically you're not going into Mexico, but you're going into this sort of deconstitutionalized zone, right, the 60-mile zone uh, in South Texas where uh, you can get pulled over at any moment and asked for your papers. And coming back north, um, there have been many stories of students here from Texas A&M that go down there to the beach, have a great time, and on their way back, uh, they're detained because, um, you know, they didn't have their the paperwork with them because they thought, well, I don't need it. I'm not leaving the United States, right? And, in fact, you definitely do. Um, I think that's what sometimes people don't really recognize and don't really understand about um, about what's happening in, in, in border communities across the United States and what has been happening for a long time. If you could see the expression on my face, I am, and mine. I, I am a gape. <laughs> Just from hearing the deconstitutionalized zone or area, right, um, sixty right. miles already into the country, that that my mouth and, is and hanging the, open. And those to are, the you know, and, and I, I would like to think that I'm pretty well rounded on news and current events, but I did not know that. Yeah, they are. These checkpoints are from Brown. They stretch from Brownsville all the way to San Diego. There's no way you can avoid it. You have to go through these checkpoints, and they're. I mean, it used to be. Back when I was growing up in the 70s and in the 80s, where these actually, they, they would close at 8 p.m., you know, they'd reopen the next day. I mean, it wasn't as strict, but um, probably somewhere around the late 80s and definitely into the 1990s, uh, they've gotten a lot more um, technologically advanced. You get your license plate. Uh, there's a photo that's taken of it. Um, these are high-tech uh, places that, uh, you know, people are being checked for. Uh, their citizenship status, and it's under the guise of, you know, we're checking for drugs or drug paraphernalia that's crossing the border, but they ask you straight up every single time, U.S. citizen, yes, no, all of that. So it's something that people often don't really consider and don't think about, and I can't tell you how many students that I've known that have been detained there because they didn't take their proper documents with them. And are they more likely to be pulled over if they look a certain way? Absolutely. Uh, stop <laughs> and frisk. It's an arbitrary process, right? And, uh-huh. Um, if, you know, there's no sort of like, oh, we're going we're gonna to hold you for this or that. You know, if you look like you might be from Canada or you look white enough. You're gonna I'm from Canada. Come, I think. <laughs> but, but you didn't get the second part. Yeah, I know. Right. You didn't get the benefit of the doubt. So that that won't you know, that doesn't matter. And exactly. so that, wow. that I think is something that I think is something that people um, you know, should realize and should know of what yeah. happens. If you're from the border like me, you know it, you understand it, 
you make sure you carry your, your paperwork with you and your documentation as you go through there because... Our, pro- our production engineer is in the booth just nodding and smirking and looking at me with his eyebrows raised like, oh, you didn't know this, Amrita? <laughs> he clearly knew this. <laughs> oh, man. It, actually, I think, um, and we're getting not toward the end just yet, but um, Amrita, you said there was something you wanted to talk about with his visit to Bloomington coming up. So yeah, I, didn't I wanted wanna, to make sure we had time. I didn't want to cut to, you off if you had a question, Jim, but I would love you to. Know, I, at I'm kind of sitting here being the, the listener spectator, if you will. Um, <laughs> Um, trying to learn as much as I can and looking forward to his visit as well. Well, for those in our listening audience, um, I, I want to give you all a chance to to know that in March, um, we're going to be doing a large campus community social justice town hall event. And you'll get a chance to meet Professor Inahosa. We're going to be doing an event specifically geared towards talking about um, undocumented um, migrants and immigration writ large. And Professor Inahosa is going to be our main keynote speaker um, on the IU campus. It's going to be held at Alumni Hall in the IMU. And it's going to be an evening event on a Wednesday evening so that um, campus and community, town and gown, as we say, can come together um, you know, in the evening um, after work, so after classes are over, so that everyone can come together. And it's going to be on a Wednesday evening in March. Um, so this is going to, you know, which is, um, and we've done these kinds of events before in the past, looking at Black Lives Matter, looking at violence against women, looking at, you know, really major events in the news. And I think that right now, immigration and, you know, <laughs> the border wall is the most pressing issue that our that our country is currently facing. Correct. Um, and it's facing a number of different groups, right? Um, every day, it seems like, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, different groups are being pulled into this particular, um, more and more people are being sucked into this, <laughs> into this issue, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, we've, uh, you know, I actually sort of twisted Professor Inahosa's rubber arm, and I asked him <laughs> many months ago if he would be willing to come and join us. Um, and he, he very graciously um, acquiesced. And you'll get a chance to hear him speak. You'll get a chance to meet with him and um, p- purchase his books. You know, yes. he'll sign them for you. Um, I'm just pulling up the date, actually, so you can put it on your calendars, folks. It's going to be Wednesday, March the 27th. And before that, um, he's probably he'll he'll be back on the show one night, and we're actually going to try to get him on Ola Bloomington as well because he is completely bilingual. He will, you know, so we're gonna we're gonna try to get him on Ola Bloomington so that he'll be on that show as well. But Wednesday evening, March, yeah, Wednesday evening, March the twenty seventh, it'll be in the evening on the IMU campus um, in you know in the alumni hall. Um, so it's going to be a great event. It's going to be starting at six o'clock in the evening. But uh, it's it's going to be wonderful. Um, but I'd um, we don't want to. You're going to have to come to. It's a free event, so you know. Hey, free is good. Yeah, free is good. And there's going to be a reception afterwards with food. There's going to be a big tabling event. There's going to be many many campus and community groups that are going to table so that you can um, see all of the different uh, justice oriented community and campus groups um, throughout. Um, Bloomington that you can volunteer at, get information from, sign up to join. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful event. Um, So I strongly encourage you to kind of keep your ears open for more information about that that we can talk about. Uh, But that's the event that I was um, alluding to earlier. Um, So, Felipe, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more maybe about your book 
and maybe talk a little bit about that. Maybe talk a little bit more about some of the things you saw even maybe in Brownsville growing up with the folks that I was really intrigued by some of the things that you saw growing up you know, with the folks that came through that you met playing basketball with courts yeah. of your church i mean anything i mean jim might have more questions for you because we still have time well, it's been such a great show it is and yeah. i will remind the readers that the name of professor inahosa's book is i'm sorry dr inahosa is latino mennonites civil rights faith and evangelical culture and he has a second book that's going to be coming yeah. out is it coming out later in 2019 felipe it, yeah, fingers crossed, 2019, if everything goes well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's going to have a second book coming out. I don't think it's going to be out in time for March, unfortunately, but we will have that first book on sale at the March event so that you can buy it and have him sign it for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, two two things that I'll say um, that really sort of drove me, you know, to think about uh, about writing about the intersections of faith and, and, uh, and activism um, and we didn't talk much about this, but I, but I know that it'll come up again um, in the future and, and even during my visit there. But, you know, two things. Number one, my life was deeply impacted and, and fundamentally changed by getting to know um, refugees from Central America, people that were seeking asylum in the United States in the 1980s. They were fleeing war. Uh, they were fleeing violence, injustice uh, in their home countries um, and coming to the United States. And as we you know, some of us might know that story in terms of the birth and the origins of the sanctuary movement where yes. uh, the Reagan administration was not um, uh, allowing these folks to, um, um, to gain asylum, to gain residency here in the United States, and so they were being quickly deported. That's when faith groups and churches stepped in and began to offer sanctuary to uh, a lot of these communities. And our church in Brownsville was one of those. Um, and as Amrita was just sort of mentioning, I... I must have been in junior high uh, in those years, but the church had a large gymnasium, and a lot of the guys from the neighborhood, we'd always play basketball and so forth. Um, and I didn't know their stories. I didn't understand their complications um, in their life uh, at that time. Uh, but I got to know them as, as people, as human beings, as people that were seeking to do something and to find hope uh, in their lives. Uh, we played basketball together. They tried to teach me soccer, although I wasn't very good at it. Um, but but it, it, it really was a, a life-changing experience for me. And I think in later years, sort of finding out what they were going through at that moment and to still see them smile, to still see them out there hustling, doing what they had to do, I think it's a source of inspiration. Um, and so it, it led me to sort of think about, you know, what role does faith play in, in social justice movements and so forth? Um and the other thing was that I cared not only in terms of the role that faith plays in these social justice movements, but also um, the kinds of coalitions that we can build as black and brown communities. Yes. Um, you know, race operates and affects our communities in very different, fundamentally different ways. Uh, but in many ways, uh, it's similar in some of the experiences that we have and the issues that we care about uh, across neighborhoods and across communities and across experiences, and I wanted to write, there's a lot about uh, tensions within black and brown communities, um, and I wanted to also write about the times that it worked, the times that people came together, and the kinds of coalitions that they forged, uh, and the ways in which they thought about race and identity and culture. Uh, those, those sorts of questions really fascinate me, and I think they're at the core of 
what I've committed myself to um, as an academic to make sure that um, the kinds of work that we do uh, is, is it matters and that it's something that, that our communities can benefit from. So that's what I'll say about that. Well, Dr. Hinojosa, can you see on into the future, and I'm sure you've got your crystal ball there, that at some point people of color, you know, as blacks and browns and, and other marginalized groups will actually get together and collaborate and do what's, um, as we say sometimes, what's best for the greater good in that group of folks. Yeah. Um, do you foresee that occurring? It seems to have great difficulty in a lot of the work that I do. Um, yeah, the, and, and there's no question. I mean, it, it is work, and there's a lot of difficulties that surround it. Um, on this campus and in the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years in racial justice, I've seen it happen, and I've seen it, um, I've seen it work. I've seen students come together uh, and work collaboratively to help each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I know, and, and even in our history, in, in the ways in which we sort of um, understand our, our history of social justice movements, there's, there's, there's a lot that we still don't know of the ways in which movements have collaborated in the past. Uh, and I think that's the work that historians need to continue to be engaged in um, going into the future as well. So those things are happening. They're happening on the ground. Does it take work? Are there going to be, you know, uh, differences and tensions and all of that? Absolutely. Uh, that shouldn't scare us. I think that should embolden us and should um, bring us uh, to the table to, to continue the conversation. One of the things that I appreciate about you, Felipe, is that you're not just an academic, and you know, it's, you're not just a scholar, that you do social justice work on your campus, and that you're really actively involved with your students, and that you've been doing that work at A&M, and in maybe just the last couple of minutes that we have left, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, back in uh, 2006 um, is when... Um, you know, there, there were all of these pushes to merge anti-terrorism uh, legislation with anti-immigrant and border kind of legislation and movements. And this is um, when you saw uh, immigrant rights marches all across the country, Chicago, Dallas, L.A., Houston, uh, everywhere, Atlanta, D.C. Um, and there was an entire generation of young people that were in high school at that time they were kids that walked out of school they walked out of their high schools in protest of what was going on those students when i got my first job as an academic at, as a historian here at texas a&m a lot of those students a lot of those students that had seen this on television that had heard their parents talk about it um those are the students that started coming to texas a&m and colleges and campuses all across the country um, and, and those are the students that took my classes and came into my office. And when I would lecture about the Chicano movement or when I would lecture about the civil rights movement, they would come into my office and wonder, okay, so what can we do here today? Like, does this history even matter for us? Uh, and how can it help us shape our movements, um, you know, for today? And so I think that that was always an inspiring thing to see students that were not only sort of taking down notes because they wanted to get an A in the class, but they were taking down notes because they were trying to figure out how best to organize social movements on campus today in the 21st century. Um, we've organized here to have the very first uh, Latino um, uh, studies minor in the history of Texas A&M. Um, I think this is um, for an institution our size and for an institution in Texas to not have 
these curricular offerings uh, before, I think, was an embarrassment. Mm. <laughs> luckily, we luckily we rectified this, um, but we still have a lot of work to do. Um, the battles against um, rescinding in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants. There's always a threat that Texas legislators will take away that uh, that right, and so. Students are always here ready to organize and ready to come together, and I'm always willing to make sure that we can use history as a tool for a greater understanding of how we can do work today. Felipe, you would not believe this. We are out of time. Unbelievable. (laughs) That was so wonderful. Thank you so, so, so much. We want to thank our guest, Professor Felipe Hinojosa. He is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University and director of undergraduate studies in the history department. He's also the co-founder and coordinator for the Latino Latino Studies Working Group. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss the plight and common misunderstandings of undocumented Latino immigrants. His award-winning book, Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture, has been hailed as the best book in Mexican-American and Latino-Latino studies. We are just so thankful that you were on with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Felipe. I'm looking it was an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. and looking so much for my own personal copy. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. We hope you enjoyed today's uh, rebroadcast of a show from December 17, 2018. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB's news director, Katie Young. Our board engineer is Chantal Lafontaine, that's me truly, and our music was done by Jamel Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. Tune in next Monday on December 16th for another episode of Bring It On at 6 p.m. Thank you very much. See you next week. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.